This is the Command Your Brand podcast, where we talk to world changers, visionaries, and founders, people that are doing big things and changing this planet in a positive way. We're learning their stories, techniques, and exactly what you need to know so that you can do things in a big way. The time is now. Get ready to take command of your brand. Hey, what is up, everybody? Jeremy here. And guys, I'm very excited for the conversation we're going to have today because we've talked about it very often on the show. And when you look at it, you know, politics is really downstream from culture, right? And if we're not handling culture, that's a big part of like what we're dealing with as a society. And we're going to talk about cancel culture today with a really cool guest. His name is Evan Nearman. He's the CEO of a company called Red Banyan. And we're going to be taking a look deep into cancel culture. So Evan, thanks for hanging out with me today, man. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the discussion. I promise that I'm not going to send people to cancel you as a consequence (laughs) of whatever we talk about. Well, let me ask you this. The thing I'm curious to find out about first and foremost is I think we kind of all have different ways we got here. But for you, like, how did cancel culture become something that came up on your radar? And I guess what's kind of your viewpoint on it, man? Yeah. So, look, this is a book that I didn't choose to write. I felt like I had to write. Because in my day job, you know, I'm not an author full time. I am a full time founder and CEO of a crisis communications firm. And last year, we helped about a hundred different people and companies navigate. These are good people, good organizations in bad circumstances. And what I observed over the last year, year and a half, is this enormous influx of requests for help for people who were under fire through no fault of their own. They were being canceled. They were being targeted. Their lives were literally being destroyed financially, emotionally, spiritually, etc. And this climate that we're in, this hyper-partisan, air on the side of outrage, it's a very destructive force. And so I felt it was important to write a book about cancel culture, to really highlight what is cancel culture and what isn't. Because right now, you got the left political left saying, oh, there's no such thing as cancel culture. But if there were, it's a good thing if you're canceling the right people. And then you got the folks on the right who are saying, everything is cancel culture. Go woke, go broke. Cancel culture is terrible. Everything's cancel culture, even if someone's being held to account. So there's all these definitions that are just not being met. So I created with this book, a framework for understanding what constitutes cancel culture, with the idea being that we should identify it because you have to define it in order to defeat it. And I really make the case in the book, the practice is fundamentally un-American. It's bad for our society. It's bad for our democracy. We can and must do better. So let me ask you this. I think before I kind of get into what is and what isn't, I want to kind of figure out like, In your viewpoint, where and when did it start? Because we have kind of the Me Too movement. We have a lot of what's happened on Twitter and other platforms with censoring and things like that. But I'm curious in your viewpoint, you know, I guess what would you say is kind of that moment when cancel culture really became a a cultural force? Well, I think there's been a confluence of events that have happened in just the last couple of years. And there's lots of things within our culture, bigger picture items, which have had a longer tail, 
you know, the fragmentation of the media, the creation of platforms that allow everyone to be a reporter, the fact that we all have cell phones with cameras and recording devices in our pockets with us at all times. So therefore, anyone can be a journalist, essentially. The breakdown of journalistic ethics and process as a consequence of having everyone and their mother and their uncle and their brother be a an influencer or someone who wants to share an opinion online. But I think that the it's really within the last couple of years, especially with movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too claiming a lot of scalps, if you will, mm -hmm. which has then led to this proliferation of cancel culture. And so that's why in the last couple of years, we've seen it really explode in terms of how pervasive it is. But I do think we're actually already starting to see signs that people are getting a little tired of this. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, hold on, I don't think we should be in such a rush to cancel people permanently. And so you have more and more people both on not just the right saying we have to stop doing this, but you're increasingly hearing from folks on the left as well who are saying cancel culture is not acceptable and it needs to stop. It's interesting because I think you've seen people also start to make a comeback from it as well. Like I think Louis C.K. is one that comes to mind for me. Or you look at somebody like Dave Chappelle, I think, is just kind of uncancelable because Dave just kind of does what he wants to do, even though they try. So I'm kind of curious, though, to find out because at the same time, you mentioned something about like, you know, if it was warranted or if it isn't warranted. Right. Because sometimes somebody might have actually done something wrong. Are they being held to account? But the interesting thing about cancel culture is it seems like just the accusation ends up being guilt, which isn't really how our system is supposed to work, right? Like you're innocent it's and proven guilty and it's kind of reversed now. A hundred percent it's reversed. And that's one of the most dangerous offshoots of cancel culture is there's a presumption of guilt. Mm -hmm. There is the elimination of due process before someone even has the opportunity to make their case or defend themselves. They've already based on a group of people who largely they don't know, they're often strangers who get mobilized through social media, who make it their life's mission to target and take somebody out, their life is already effectively ended before they even have the chance to defend themselves. And that's not right. It's fundamentally un-American. It violates every notion, like you said, of due process. I do think, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not the guy who, and people have this misperception. Even just by reading the title of the book, there's this misperception that somehow, or the fact that I'm in crisis communications, that you know I have a vested interest in defending bad people and I don't care. There's nobody ever does anything. It would be impossible for me to point to someone and say that they deserve punishment. That's not the case at all. In fact, I think if people do things for which they should be held to account, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I got no problem with accountability culture. I have no problem even with people exercising their fundamental rights to speak out, to criticize, even to boycott brands. What I do have a problem with is the ad hominem attacks, not arguing against people based on the merits of your argument or the deficiencies of theirs, but making it personal and targeting them for destruction. That I don't believe in and that – I think is wrong. And so I get this question often, well, when is the right time where someone deserves to be canceled? And my answer will probably make some people mad, but I don't think there's ever really an instance where someone should be canceled. 
if someone has reprehensible, and that begs the question, well, what about if someone is out there in the world and they are espousing these reprehensible, reprehensible views and they're doing terrible things and saying terrible things? And I would say, well, then it's incumbent upon us to challenge them mm-hmm. and to have our say. But I don't believe the right answer to dealing with messages or positions or political stances, which we disagree, is to remove the other person's ability to say what they want to say. So even though I may feel that what they're saying is awful, I will defend to my dying breath the right of them to actually say it. Well, because think frankly, you know, don't they just make their own grave deeper anyway? Do you know what I mean? Like, why are we saying, hey, you can't dig the grave deeper? Well, yes, in a marketplace of ideas. I mean, this country for hundreds of years has been about, well, let's debate. I mean, if you look in the political sphere, going back to the 1700s, 1800s, people would debate. They would get together and they would argue their points in front of an audience. And it was a marketplace of ideas. And whoever has the best arguments wins the day. Mm -hmm. We need to get back to that. Just because someone disagrees with you doesn't mean that you should make it your life's mission to shut them up permanently. Well, there's a couple different things that I'm curious about in this, because I think at the same time, there has to be some sort of a road to redemption, right? Like there has to be an ability, like, you know, if you've made a mistake, even if that's a terrible mistake to come back from that. And I guess from your viewpoint, how do we have a road to redemption, you know, if we have been canceled? Well, in the past, there was always a road to redemption. And I would argue that America for hundreds of years loved nothing more than a redemption story. This was the place where People could make a mistake, they could get knocked on their butts, but then they could come back and Mm -hmm. they could triumph. You see that throughout our culture and in the stories that we tell, the movies that we like, et cetera, where the underdog, we root for the underdog and in the end, the underdog is able to prevail. But that has gotten turned on its head in today's world, where instead we started championing this idea of victimhood and outrage Mm -hmm. and we started cheering against other people I think what's really sad is – and I was on Twitter this morning talking about this because I'm looking at this just litany of negative stuff in my news feed. And I just put it out on Twitter and I said, look, reminder, Democrats are not the enemy. Republicans are not the enemy. There's so much more that unites than divides us. America's real enemies are watching us tear our country apart from the inside out. And they're making plans. Yes. And so for me, I felt like I had to do this book as a wake up call to my fellow countrymen to say, we don't need to be doing this to each other. We got to get back to a time where people can have disagreements, where they can fundamentally have different visions for what's the right way forward on any issue. But we can agree to disagree, we can debate, and we can still treat each other with dignity and respect. Now, on this question of redemption, I think that is one of the worst parts. And I think cancel culture, it upsets not just – it upsets the norms in our society. Jeremy, if I do something to you in a pre-cancel culture world, say I make a mistake, you know, I make a conscious decision not to invite you to my kid's birthday party and I tell you that I think your shirt is ugly. So we're talking about a serious offense here. In a pre-cancel culture world – You could tell me, you know, you really hurt my feelings. That wasn't right. And I could reflect on it. And I'd say, you know what, Jeremy, I made a mistake. It was rude of me not to invite you. It was also rude of me not to, you know, to say terrible things about your shirt. I apologize. And at that point, 
you would either say, well, you know, we're not friends anymore and, it, and it's done. Or you would say, OK, I accept your apology and we would be able to move forward. In a cancel culture world, there is no apology that will ever satisfy you. Mm-hmm. If I've done something like in the scenario I just described, then you'll say, if I apologize to you, I'll say, Jeremy, I'm sorry I didn't invite you. That was mean. And I'm sorry I insulted your shirt. Well, then you would take to social media and you'd get your whole cancel vulture mob and you'd say, see, Evan apologized. He admitted that he did something terrible. He's a despicable human being. And we should make sure that no one ever does business with him. No one ever talks to him. Let's contact all his customers, his clients. Tell them what a piece of garbage Evan is. Let's go after all his friends who he's connected to and remind them that he's an awful person. And so the whole fabric of how we operate as people is being destroyed by cancel culture. And that's why we need to just get back to agreeing to disagree and also being willing to allow people to make mistakes because it's when you make a mistake, that's where you have opportunities for learning, for growth, for redemption, and to improve. There's a a word in sociology and it escapes me at the moment, but the concept is that people act differently with others watching them. And when you look at it, I'm curious if a lot of this is actually motivated by social media, right? Because if you look at it, if somebody has, you know, 5 million people whose opinions they're worrying about or 100,000 people whose opinions they're worrying about, is that why people get so hardened to being, you know, I guess right in that situation? Do you get what I'm saying? Like they have to impress a lot more people so they can't be wrong? Yeah, and I think social media has completely and fundamentally altered the way that we interact with each other. I mean, I talk about in the book how people will do and say things online that they would never do in real life. They say awful things. They threaten people. They bully people that they would never have the guts to do or even the decency to do if they were sitting face to face. But somehow they feel like it's okay because you're either – safely at home behind your keyboard or you're hiding behind a fake name or handle that somehow it's acceptable to behave that way. I think that it goes without saying that social media has changed the way that we interact with our fellow citizens, with each other. And it's what we're seeing is cancel culture would never be possible unless we lived in a world of hyper-connectivity fueled by social media. And there's also this symbiosis between social media and mainstream media, and they feed off of each other. And so what you can have is something that takes place purely in a social media context, and all the mainstream press, where do they get their information? They hang out all day on Twitter and other social media sites to see what's in the zeitgeist, and that's where they get story ideas. Then what inevitably happens is the media starts reporting on whatever's brewing on social media and then it takes what could be, in some instances, just a flicker, a, a spark, and it throws gasoline on top of it. And before you know it, you've got an inferno burning out of control. You know what's interesting as well is I feel like we've kind of gotten into this world where people are increasingly, like, whether they want to or not, it's increasingly demanded they put their viewpoints out there. I forget what it was in reference to, but Michael Jordan, they were asking him to take an opinion on something, and he goes, well, Republicans buy shoes too. And when they were asking about Nikes. But I think in the world we're in now, like, it's almost demanded if you have a certain level of following, like, you have to say something. And I'm curious from your viewpoint, how do you either A, not buy into that, or B, like, how do you prevent yourself from being canceled? Well, it's very dangerous because, you know, to your point, 
people expect just because you're famous or you have followers, you're online famous, you're a celebrity, that, that you're going to have an opinion on everything. And I would argue it's okay to stay in your lane somewhat and not to – no one could realistically know everything about every topic. And I think it's unfair when people like professional athletes, for instance, are asked to give their opinions about complex policy debates or current events. It puts them on the spot. I think the safest play and the counsel that I would give to them is to not go into areas in which you don't really have a real depth of knowledge and also think before because, you know, a lot of the crises that we deal with in my company, Red Banyan, is we're guiding good people in bad circumstances. So much of the time, it's a self-inflicted wound because the person made a mistake. They went too far. They talked about something, especially on social media. So if you follow these two rules and you share with care and you post with purpose before you actually hit tweet or post or send, you'll eliminate about 99% of the perspective problems that you're about to have online that will spill over and could impact your financial future, your professional life, et cetera. So before you weigh in on whatever the hot topic of the day is, you're inevitably going to make somebody angry. So just consider whether or not that's really a space that you want to be in. Part of the problem also with social media today is you have influencers who, even though they have no qualifications per se to weigh in on certain topics, they have tremendous platforms and they may have millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people who are clinging to every word they say. And so we've given a lot of responsibility to our celebrities and our influencers. They have more of an ability also to connect directly with their followers and their fans due to the interconnectedness of social media and the, how easy it is to be on Twitter. You can now you know, tweet at a celebrity and maybe goad them into responding to you. And so it's become a much, much more dangerous world for people who live in the public eye, as well as for all businesses and organizations. That might be a good rule of thumb to ask myself, what would Kanye West do and do the opposite? <laughs> he's a challenging one, you know? You, you never kind of know and, what and he's he, going to do. Well, he doesn't know what he's going to do either. And, you know, his is a really remarkable, I mean, by the time this thing airs, even if it airs in three hours, he may have already moved on to his next crazy thing yeah. because that's just kind of what he's up to these days. His is a really unique circumstance because in most cases, people have to be afraid that other people are going to try to cancel them. He kind of canceled himself. Exactly. And it was, <laughs> it was a self-immolation of epic proportion. And you know, Kanye West, I think – his circumstance is, is relatively unique. Yeah. I think there are a handful of people who are out there in the world who are incredibly high profile, some of the most famous people on the planet, and they operate and they live in this zone where the average person never even approaches. The same rules that would apply to you or I don't really apply to them. Yeah. So I'm curious to kind of take a look at, and I know we've kind of gotten deep into this without asking this question, but what is cancel culture versus what isn't cancel culture? So I'm going to refer to my book here and read for you in chapter two, which is appropriately enough called Defining Cancel Culture. The use of intimidation by a morally absolute coalition to isolate and disproportionately punish an alleged transgressor. So if you were to 
pull that apart a little bit. The use of intimidation, which we talk about, that's people sitting at home, people who are not personally impacted by what's happened, but they're choosing to get involved and they're choosing to try to cancel someone. They're trying to intimidate or derail someone by a morally absolute coalition. And we can get into the six elements that I've identified that constitute cancel culture. And this will become more clear. I can speak to that part to isolate and disproportionately punish the transgressor. And I think that that's really the key is accountability means someone did something and they're being held to account. And the punishment by and large fits the crime. And we have accountability culture. It's called societal norms. It's also called a legal system. Mm -hmm. And our legal system, however imperfect it may be, it has worked for hundreds of years. If you commit a crime, if you're charged with a crime, you then have a fair opportunity to defend yourself. And then a jury of your peers hears the evidence and they make a determination based on the case that one side makes and the case that the other side makes. The difference with cancel culture, which is really trial by mob, you're talking about a group of people who don't have the information, they're prejudging the outcome, and they are empowered to become judge, jury, and executioner before the case even goes to court. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between accountability versus cancel culture. Well, I guess when we look at that then, you know, like, what if we have been canceled? Like, what do we do? How do we handle it? Where do we go? Because at the same time, like, you can kind of get shut out of what is polite culture anymore, polite society at this point. You can. And, you know, it harkens back to when you were talking about comedians. There's been several comedians who I think have been willing and able to do this. And I'll tell you why I think that is. I, well, so first, what is it that they're doing? Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock even Roseanne, what is it that they're choosing to do? They're choosing to face down those who say they should be canceled. Kevin Hart, the list goes on. Yeah, They're willing to face down people who are calling for them to be canceled, and they're basically refusing to be canceled. They're saying, nope, you're not going to have your way. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going away. Joe Rogan is another great example. This is a guy who, in his case, he made mistakes. He apologized. He explained. And it wasn't enough. Again, people wouldn't have been satisfied, some of them, unless Spotify got rid of the Joe Rogan experience, which was at the time the number one podcast in the world. Yeah. Anything shy of total destruction of Joe Rogan was an unacceptable outcome for these cancel vultures. But what Joe has done and Dave and these other comics is they basically said, look, I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to let the mob intimidate me. I'm not going to let them disproportionately punish me. And I'm going to push back and I'm going to continue to go about my life and do my thing. It's much harder for the average citizen because people don't necessarily have that same platform. They yes. don't have shows with hundreds or thousands of people listening, hanging on their every word. They don't have huge social media followings. They don't have a team of people around them, promoters, bookers, publicists, lawyers, advisors. And so it's much harder for the average person on the street. And you know that's part of why there's a whole chapter in this book, which is a playbook telling people, if you are under fire, what are some strategies that you can employ in order to get yourself uncanceled and then ideally 
avoid cancellation in the first place. There is life after cancellation. And I think we're seeing that time and time again, that for years at sort of the height of cancel culture several years ago, people were so scared they would just go away. And what's happened is several people have successfully managed to overcome being canceled. And I think people are taking that to heart. They're noticing that and they're drawing some inspiration and strength from those who refuse to be canceled. And they're learning that they too can persevere. You know, it's really interesting too, because I feel like there's people that are also just deciding to not play the game anymore. Like I think Glenn Greenwald is an excellent example of this. Him and Tucker Carlson don't essentially agree on a lot of things, yet he's a frequent guest on Tucker Carlson now. And I think there's people are just saying, you know, I'm not going to play this game. And as I guess we look at it as society as a whole, is that what we have to do? Just decide we're not going to play this game anymore? Like, is that what it kind of comes down to? And that's good. And that's people from different ideologies, different viewpoints coming together and they can disagree and they can have a debate. And that's Remember, that was something that was a key component of American society for a very long time, not just in politics, but all over. But increasingly, we've become more tribalistic. And think about the people in your life who are Republicans who really only hang out with Republicans and conversely, the ones who are Democrats who only want to be around Democrats. We're all Americans. There needs to be a return to how it used to be where you can disagree but you could do it based on merits of arguments and not ad hominem attacks or hatred. And I do think there are some signs that we're headed back towards that because, frankly, if we continue down the cancel culture road, not only are all of us at risk, all of us inevitably are going to make a mistake. And if we just keep canceling each other, there's going to be no one left. The snake eventually eats itself. That's what happens. And I think if we don't handle it, if we don't take responsibility, that's the exact direction we're headed. It doesn't need to be like that. Yeah. Well, Evan, once again, the book is called The Cancel Culture Curse. For those listening, you know, how can we get it and where can we find you? Yeah, you can find the book wherever books are sold. You can go on Amazon and you can get it there. You could also download it on Audible where yours truly narrates it. So if you want me to read it to you, I'm happy to do so. Just get it on Audible or another site where you get audiobooks. You can also get a Kindle electronic version. And you can find out more information at cancelculture.com. And if you want to connect with me directly, find me on Twitter at Evan Nearman. Send me an email, evan at redbanion.com. I answer and review my own email. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I look forward to continuing the conversation in a spirit of debate and mutual respect. Very cool. Evan Nearman, thank you so much for hanging out with me today, man. Yeah, thank you. It's a great talk. <laughs> 